Welcome to another exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irrenable Shag from Firestorm Fan. Thank goodness my other co-host, Rob Kelly, isn't here today. Woohoo! Instead, I have a very, very special guest, ladies and gentlemen. I have Mr. Kyle Benning from the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast to help me fly through this comic we're going to talk about. And before he gets talking, you're going to notice the sound quality is a little different, and there's a reason for that. My good friend Kyle is actually in his natural habitat. If you listen to his show, you know that means he's in his car, (laughs) and he's driving across the highways and byways of our country, aren't you, Kyle? That's right, I am. Thanks for having me aboard. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled to have you here. Hopefully, if this all goes well, we're not going to distract Kyle so much that he actually drives off the road. I don't really want to have a snuff podcast. I, I don't think that would be appropriate for the kiddies. It would be a little historic, though. It would be a bit historic, but I don't know that your family would appreciate having it on tape. What do you think? Yeah, <laughs> Well, folks, we are going to talk about one of Kyle and I's Well, maybe I'm speaking for him. It's one of my favorite comics. We are going to talk about first issue special number nine starring Dr. Fate. Woo! So excited about this. You know, Kyle, why don't don't you tell me, like, when did you first sort of, like, discover Dr. Fate, or where does your passion for Dr. Fate come from? Yeah, my uh, first exposure to the character actually might have been this issue. I picked it up from a garage sale around when I was uh, 10 years old, uh, which uh, I would have read the story when it was uh, reprinted in the Immortal Dr. Fate number one. And uh, when I uh, picked that up, I think I picked up the uh, four-issue Giffen miniseries as well with it, and I would have been around 10 years old, and that's really kind of when I first started diving into the character and found a real passion for him. Uh, before that, you know, I, I'd seen him pop up in some other comics, but didn't know a whole lot about him besides he looked really awesome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just kind of hit me in my sweet spot at, at the right time there. Uh, that's kind of really when I was kind of branching out into uh, 
uh, adventure type comics, which I have a real fondness for, things like Conan the Barbarian, and you know, kind of had a little bit of that mystery, that mysticism tied in with uh, archaeology, which is another thing that I got pretty big and interested into around this time. Uh, I mean, like the Indiana Jones movies, I really love those things, and. Uh, it's actually, I, I just recorded an episode, uh, which will be up by the time this one goes up, uh, of my podcast, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, where I cover uh, All-Star Comics number two. And in that, uh, there's a Hawkman story, and Golden Age Hawkman was another one where he was uh, an archaeologist. And, man, that, I just love that story, and I just gush on and on about it, kind of about my uh, passion on archaeology. And when I was thinking about that and been preparing for this issue, it really kind of made me think, well, man, I, I really do kind of love these comics that are, you know, those ancient artifacts of power or magic, and uh, especially when they're tied into some sort of ancient religion that really just kind of spread up my alley. Um, one of my other favorite comics, uh, it's probably my top ten favorite comics of all time, and this one might be in there as well, is uh, I believe it's Hulk number 257, and that's one where I believe that's the first appearance of the Arabian Night, where uh, Hulk squaring off against these two ancient Egyptian demons, uh, Gog and Magog, and uh, so yeah, I, I guess I just have a real passion for kind of archaeology mixed with superheroes and adventure and some sort of kind of ancient power mixed in, so that's pretty much uh, perfect for Dr. Fate, so uh, Dr. Fate and uh, the Spectre are two of my favorite PC characters. They both kind of have those origins in the Golden Age, but touch on kind of that magic mystery uh, power. And, you know, normally I'm not a mark for magic comics, but those two are definitely the exception. You know, some of their most uh, iconic runs of Spectre and Doctor Fate both came out of the '70s. Actually, you know, the the, the they were, you know the Immortal Doctor Fate, as you mentioned, the reprints of this great Doctor Fate stuff from the '70s, which still sort of resonates with the readers today, and a lot of the iconography they use for the character, and then the Wrath of the Spectre reprints, which had the Jim Aparo Spectre stuff. Uh, also from the 70s. I mean, just really strong stuff. And by the way, folks, if you haven't listened to Kyle's podcast, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, you really got to give it a try. It's a fun show. Uh, Kyle's shtick is he records in his car during his lunch hour, <laughs> which is super fun. And he covers some really great comics. In fact, if you want to talk about older comics, Kyle's kind of one of the go-to people to go to. Go-to to go-to? Hmm. Anyway, he's got a real passion <laughs> for these older characters. He's got a real passion for the old comics. Because you're you're younger than I am, bastard, and I'm just fascinated that a younger reader could be so intrigued and get caught up in these older comics, especially stuff from like from the '70s. Because when I when I came up in the '80s, like the way it worked, and, and you guys may find this hard to believe, but in the '80s you, we looked down on comics from the '70s. We we thought they were bad. It's like ooh, '70s comics, yuck. Sort of like a few years ago, everyone looked down on '90s comics, and now mm, everyone's warming up to them a little bit more. But back then, it's like, ooh, yuck, 70s comics were terrible, 80s comics are great, man. So it's sort of, I'm sort of hardwired to not like 70s comics sometimes. I mean, there's a whole bunch I do like, obviously. To have someone who's younger to fall in love with these Bronze Age and even some of these Golden Age stories, I think it's awesome, man. So it's, uh, And I love your show. Lots of fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, a lot of that, I guess, just kind of comes back to what you're exposed to first. And, you know, my uh, first exposure to comics is really some of the first things I ever read where I inherited a huge collection of 70s and 80s comics uh, from my uncles, my dad's brothers, and I'm sure some of those were my dad's as well. But um, some of my dad's older brothers would have been born in the 50s, so I even had, you know, 50s and 60s comics, too. And so, you know, that being my first exposure, that's kind of the storytelling method and kind of the, the status quo of the characters at that time is really what I lacked on to and that's always kind of been my preference that's cool you know you mentioned how you came to this issue um i came to this issue later the first time well i mean, I, I got exposed to dr fate and some of the old jsa crossovers with the with the jsa jla stuff but really when i first probably took notice is the best way to put it of dr fate was in the superpowers 
comic book series. Not even the action figures, believe it or not. It was the comic book series, volume two, that had Firestorm in it. So, of course, I got it for Firestorm. And I was like, who's this badass guy, Dr. Fate, with his giant onks fighting on Easter Island? I was in total heaven. I loved it. And, and maybe it was the archaeology angle that sort of appealed to me as well, because, you know, at that point, for me, Indiana Jones was huge. And uh, either way, I just ever since then, I've always, the, I've always been attracted to the character. And then in the probably late 80s or early 90s, I started buying up back issues. That's when I would have got this one. And the, the weird thing is, I don't even think I sought this one out. I don't even think it was like, oh, I've heard this is the best Dr. Fate issue. I think I just was desperate for anything with Dr. Fate. And I found this because, the you know, honestly, to me, when I was a kid, Cubert wasn't a big draw. So the Cubert cover wouldn't have sold me by any means. But inside, whoa, you know, just amazing stuff. So I love the character, always have. So, well, we should, uh, before we get too much further, we should probably uh, do in-stock trades. So, folks, Kyle's driving, so I'm going to let him off the hook a little bit here. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him to do an in-stock trades, but I know he would have done one because, you know, he's a great supporter of the show and, you know, and um, you can suck it, Bailey. So uh, this guest would have brought one. Anyway, folks, this episode of the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, I'm going to talk about two Dr. Fate books you can get on InStock Trades right now. I've talked about one of these before, so forgive me, but it's just that good. It's the Golden Age Dr. Fate Archives, Volume 1. Guys, this thing is 396 pages, full color. We're talking archive edition. So this is hardcover. It's the high, you know, the really high quality paper, the archival paper. And again, 396 pages. Oh my gosh. It reprints his more fun comics appearances, issues 55 to 98. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I normally struggle with Golden Age comics. I love, like, modern age retelling of Golden Age comics, like All-Star Squadron and Secret Origins and stuff like that. But actually sitting down and reading Golden Age comics, I normally struggle. These Dr. Fate Golden Age comics are friggin' great. They still read really, really solid, really, really good. Some of them are really quirky and really bizarre, and I, I love them to death. So... Uh, this is, as I said, it's a very large volume. Normally retails for $75. However, on in-stock trades right now, the time of this recording, it's 42% off, so you can get it for $43.50. Again, that's a steal for 396 pages of the classic Dr. Fate. The other thing I want to plug is uh, a trade paperback, one of the new 52 trade paperbacks. It's Earth 2, trade paperback, volume 2. It's called The Tower of Fate. And this is when they brought the new Doctor Fate into the uh, Earth Two series. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting character. It was a very, it was a different take because actually wearing the helmet drove him insane. So there was, you felt a lot for this guy. The, it's written by James Robinson, art by Nicola Scott and Trevor Scott. Um, 176 pages, full color. Normally goes for sixteen dollars and ninety nine cents. It's also on sale right now for forty two percent off. You can get it for nine dollars and eighty five cents. So please, folks, head out to In Stock Trades. Pick up those trade paperbacks or anything else by Walt Simonson or Marty Pasco. Those will also be great choices. And again, it's InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, if you want to read this comic that we're going to talk about, and again, it's uh, it's called First Issue Special Number 9 from 1975, check this out. 
Coming in December, you can actually get a brand new trade paperback from DC Comics. I'm getting this thing. I have everything in it. Actually, two different versions of everything in it. I don't care. I'm buying the trade anyway. It's called The Immortal Doctor Fate, and it collects the comic we're going to talk about. It collects the flashback ups, um, all the stuff from the Immortal Doctor Fate miniseries, which is basically what I just described. Anyway, and um, the Doctor Fate, the four-issue Doctor Fate miniseries you just mentioned by Keith Giffen, which introduces Eric and Linda Strauss, and DC Challenge number 11. Um, 224 pages. It's going for about 20 bucks. it looks like. Coming out in December. It's called The Immortal Doctor Fate. I am so excited for that trade. I, I Other than the hardcover Doctor Fate, I don't think I have any Doctor Fate trades. So I think this is going to be great. Yeah, it definitely sounds exciting. Those are some great stories. So it's nice that they're finally getting reprinted. And they should be. People should be reading these great comics. I mean, they're so good. So... All right. Well, uh, again, Kyle's driving. Don't wanna don't wanna endanger him. So I'm gonna do the recap. Normally, as a guest, I would offer him the chance, but I'll do that, and then Kyle's gonna lead us through the discussion on the back end. So, here we go, folks. First issue special number nine, cover dated December 1975. So get out, go ahead and get out your magical time turner, and uh, you can head back to September 18th. 1975. That's actually when it hit the shelves. So September 18th, 1975, and our thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. And you better bring 25 shiny pennies with you. Just make sure the uh, print date on those is before 1975, or they're going to figure out, you know, you're from the future and you don't want that. That would just be a big headache. Also, if you want to read it, uh, you can get read the reprints in the DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest, number three. It's also reprinted in The Immortal Doctor Fate, which is where I'm rereading it from. And I think you reread it from the Blue Ribbon Digest. Is that right, Kyle? I have the DC Blue Ribbon Digest, which is turning out by the uh, Immortal Doctor Fate number one. And so the first time I read it to prep for tonight's episode, I actually took the uh, Blue Ribbon Digest to me with, or with me to work and uh, sat down there and read it over my lunch hour. And then I reread it last night uh, just to get an appreciation for the gorgeous full-size Walt Simonson art. I uh, reread it again in the uh, Immortal Doctor Fate number one issue. I'd love one, you know, I would love one of those, uh, IDW. They do those, I don't remember what they call them, like masterpiece editions or something where they're like enormous, like treasury size. That, yeah, of this comic. Yeah, that would be great of this one. So, by the way, you can find this reprint in one more place. It was a trade paperback back in 1989 called The Art of Walt Simonson. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I'm going to get into this, folks. You've got, um, the original first issue cover, first issue special had a cover by Joe Kubert. Featured a sphinx soaring down to attack Dr. Fate in the cityscape. And the tagline on it said, The Master of Magic Battles, the Mummy that Time Forgot. So, and uh, the Immortal Dr. Fate that I'm reading, the cover is actually a new Walt Simonson cover he did when uh, Immortal Dr. Fate was reprinted in 84. And it's got Dr. Fate very triumphant with Ankh's iconography behind him. And he's got the mummy coming at you, Inza. And it also says, Doc- and, and Anubis says, Dr. Fate Battles the Mummy that Time Forgot. So, and the Blue Origin Digest, I believe it just had, um, like, Superman. It was a kind of a collage. And it had Dr. Fate coming up from the bottom. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, just a Society of America themed digest, and so it reprints uh, a couple old issues. Uh, it has one of the Golden Age All-Star series, and then uh, reprints a story from the All-Star revival there in the 70s, and then also then has the uh, Dr. Fate reprinted issue. So it's mostly kind of a JSA-themed cover, and Dr. Fate has a little blurb in the bottom. Gotcha. Well, getting into the comments itself, you've got writer Martin Pascoe, artist Walt Simonson, and editor Jerry Conway. Uh, this sucker's 18 pages long, folks. 
And uh, here's kind of the recap. So the, the story starts off, it's midnight at Fate's Tower in Salem, Massachusetts. And Dr. Fate is uh, flying out of the tower. He's responding to an urgent warning from the crystal orb of Naboo. And he flies to the Boston Museum of Egyptology, where Dr. McGill and Professor Anderson are taking a late-night visit to the museum. Now, while they're there, a sarcophagus opens and comes out. A mummy comes out and kills them. Turns out that this is the servant of Anubis. His name is, uh, I believe it's Kalis, is how you say it. And there's a big triumphant announcement. Kalis lives! And this mummy has glowing red eyes. And uh, when his mouth is open, you can see flames in his gaping mouth. Now, guys, I, I just, I do want to say, the art in this book is astounding. I don't, uh, this is more of a recap of the story, so we'll come back and talk about the art. But man, I just, it is breathtaking, every bit of this thing. So, all right, getting back into the story. Um, Dr. Fate shows up. Him and Kalis uh, have a battle. And we find out that as Kalis is growing more powerful, Dr. Fate is actually weakening. And uh, Kalis steals Dr. Fate's amulet, the amulet of Naboo, and leaves Fate unconscious. Fate eventually wakes up, and uh, when he does, he returns to Fate's ta- uh, his tower in Salem, and he's in a weakened state. And he says to Inza, uh, Inza Nelson, which is Kent's wife, he flies through and he says, I have returned your husband to you. So she takes the helmet off, begins to nurse Kent back to health, and they start to discuss how Dr. Fate and Kent Nelson are actually two different consciousnesses. They don't get into a lot of details, but they basically explain that when he puts the helmet on, someone else is actually controlling the body other than Kent Nelson. Well, as uh, as Inza sort of doing this info dump for us and expressing her frustration about how it's, it's very difficult on her, Kent falls asleep from exhaustion. And she friggin' snaps. She loses it. She has had enough. She's stuck in this tower all the all the time with no windows. She's not allowed to have any friends. She describes Kent as half a husband because he's, you know, Dr. Fate the other half of the time. And she says they feel like prisoners. So she actually storms out. She says she's had enough and she's leaving. She's not going to do this anymore. And she, she leaves him. When Kent awakens, he's very sad, but he's also very driven. So he goes up to his study and begins to study about Kalis, this, this mummy, trying to find out what the deal is. And we get a really just gorgeous flashback of uh, 2030 BC. We're introduced to the mad priest Kalis in ancient Egypt, and he is preaching the word of Anubis. And all these terrible things happen, and he ends up, um, Anubis, the actual god of Anubis, comes out out of the sky and grants uh, Kalis the amulet of Anubis and gives him great power. So Kalis then becomes, uh, sets himself up. They don't say he becomes a pharaoh, but sort of sets himself up this way. Um, he, he takes a bunch of slaves and makes them build a pyramid in, in homage, homage to Anubis. Well, uh, Naboo shows up. He's not going to have any of this business. He defeats Kalis, frees the slaves, and then the slaves actually mummify Kalis while he's still alive. And Anubis decides to grant Kalis a mortal life. Well, Dr. Fate reads all this and uh, finds out, and, and not Dr. Fate, I'm sorry, Kent is reading all this and figures out that this amulet all along was actually Kalis's amulet, and Nabu never told him that. Then we get a, a brief flashback, only a one-pager, but retelling the origin of Dr. Fate, and it's a little bit different than previous origins, but we'll just hit it real quick. It talks about 12-year-old Kent Nelson is in uh, at, at these ruins of a Sumerian civilization. He's there with his father, Sven, who's an archaeologist. Kent, the 12-year-old Kent accidentally releases Nabu inside the, the tomb, and um, Nabu, who's been preserved all this time, and there's all this gas that pours out, and the gas unfortunately kills um, Kent's father. So Kent's obviously distraught. Nabu uses some magic to ease Kent's pain, and then it just kind of says from there on, Nabu raised Kent uh, to adulthood, 
and uh, helped train Kent into being uh, in the mystical arts and taught Kent to become Dr. Fate and, and got him dedicated to preserving the natural order. So then we click back. We find Inza. She's actually at a hotel nearby, and she realizes she's made a mistake. She blew her stack. She shouldn't have. She regrets storming out. Uh, one of the terms I've heard refer to her as, as uh, it's not in the book, but they refer to her sort of as a hero's widow, sort of like a policeman's widow, meaning uh, it's a woman who or a spouse who has to stay behind while their spouse goes out and does something important, and they, they don't get to see them, they don't get to spend much time with them, they don't know if they're going to come home alive. It's that kind of that same kind of concept, like a policeman's wife has to suffer through and she realizes that you know what she does love him and really it's it's what she wants to do she doesn't want to be his nursemaid anymore but she does want to help she wants to help dr fate and help kent so she decides to go to the museum and do some investigating about kalis um then we switch back kalis and dr fate actually have another confrontation they battle and fate does this really amazing thing where he actually sucks all the electricity all the energy out of the city of boston and unleashes it into kalis Kalis still survives, though. He gets away. Uh, Inza arrives and hands Dr. Fate this fragment of uh, stonework she found from the sarcophagus, and it apparently reveals the mummy's magical name. When next we come back, we see that Boston has actually been transformed. The cityscape of Boston now features an enormous sphinx that has uh, Anubis' head and a pyramid. And Kalis has done all this in honor of Anubis. And he says, you know, he's screaming to the heavens, going, Anubis, I've built all this for you. You know, aren't you happy? And Anubis, the, the clouds part, and the giant jackal-headed god of Anubis looks over the clouds and basically berates Kalis, saying, like, I don't even know who you are, man. And he says that, that Kalis is a fool for bothering him. And from now on, the name Kalis will mean being a fool. And Kalis is furious. He's totally upset. I mean, he's 3,000 years, he's been in a tomb waiting to, you know, honor Anubis, and he's just totally blowing him off. So he's, he's furious. And they kind of make a deal. Anubis basically says, well, tell you what, if you can kill Dr. Fate, um, then maybe I'll forgive you. So they have a battle. It's, it's a glorious, glorious magical battle. It's really cool. Lots of amazing iconography going on here. We'll talk about this on the back end. And in the end, Fate uses the uh, tablet he found, uh, sorry, that Inza found, to say Kalis's real name. He casts this Amun-Ra death spell, and uh, Kalis is destroyed. And Dr. Fate then reclaims the amulet of Anubis and takes it back, and he says to himself that Naboo must have set all this up as a test to see if he could pass it. Then, thankfully, Inza churn shows up. She's reunited with Kent, and they have a nice moment where they, where Kent actually says that they defeated uh, Kalis together as a team, as a duo. It's not just Dr. Fate. It was Dr. Fate, Kent, and Inza together who did it. And that is the end of that story. Woo! All right, buddy. So what did you think Great of it? Great synopsis. Well, thank oh, you. I absolutely love it. I got a lot to say, and I guess I don't, not where to, sh- uh, where to start, but, uh, I guess jumping right into it, one of the, the things I hear or complaints I hear levied against magic characters, and I have some of the same issues why I don't really get characters like Doctor Strange a whole lot is, you know, that they always pull some magic hijinks out of their back pocket at the last minute, and that kind of solves everything. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like that happens at all in this story. I feel like the, you know, the conclusion using the, the tablet that uh, was originally used to seal Kalis, that coming back in, I feel like that was kind of set up with the internal logic of the story already. Um, I guess, would this have been like your first exposure when you read this kind of to ancient Egypt myths? Um, actually, I was a really big fan of mythology. Uh, I Like as a kid, I used to seek out mythology books and read them all on my own. I hadn't read a lot of Egypt mythology, but um, so this this may be, you know, some of my more intensive ex- exposure to it. What about you? 
Well, see, I I always love mummies. That's probably my favorite of kind of the, the monster type things, which is really underused nowadays. I mean, all you ever see is vampires, werewolves, and zombies, but there, uh, I always had a fondness for mummies. There were three mummy like, movies, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. I, oh, I love those things. Not not the third one. <laughs> <laughs> the first one was good. Uh, I'll give you that. Yeah. I don't mind Rock as the Scorpion King in the second one, but... Uh, uh, and Johnny Quest, I loved Johnny Quest as a kid, and I really loved the Mummy episode of that, and that was brought in the, the Curse of Anubis, and Scooby-Doo touched on it occasionally, but uh, I read a book, I think, I want to say it was called uh, House on Hackman Hill, when I was seven or eight years old, that absolutely terrified me, where there was essentially like a mummy down in the closet, and I think these kids get trapped in this old house with it, and Anubis is walking around the house, like haunting them, so I was a little bit familiar with kind of the, the character and kind of the basic myth, and unfortunately, kind of through that lens and through what you see in cartoons and stuff like that, it kind of has a Judeo-Christian take on it, imprinted on it, so a, a lot of times you see Anubis treated as kind of the analogy of the devil mm-hmm. in uh, Egypt times, I mean, he's the, the lord of the underworld, and, uh, you know, reigns in darkness, which uh, I, you know, believe that kind of the first uh, mention of a type of hell in in the Bible is called either Tartarus or Tardis, which was essentially just a, a deep black pit. And so, uh, with Anubis and his servant then kind of coming from the the darkness and pit, it would it would make sense that light would be his enemy. And I guess that uh, you know, in the ancient Egypt part of the story, the, the flashback, you know, he's uh, Kalos is using the power of Anubis there for someone to defeat him. They would also obviously have to be kind of tapping into some divine power so it only makes sense that the enemy or of anubis or where uh naboo is getting the power from would be then the the god of light or the heavens uh amon or amun ra yeah essentially like the apollo uh in the greek mythology and so uh, i feel like that was kind of set up well in the story i mean he kind of playing on that take of darkness versus light the whole time so he kind of had that foreshadowing coming and you knew that probably i mean the, the internal logic that using power from the sun god would be the, the end result. You know, that wasn't a out-of-left-field twist. That was something that kind of been set up already in the story, so I felt it worked. I totally agree. And, and you know, then when he uh, when Dr. Fate unleashes the power of Amun-Ra, you have know, that gorgeous half-splash page of kind of the, you know, the Amun-Ra falcon head there and kind of the orange or pink light beams coming off and just zapping Kalos. Oh, man, that's just a gorgeous page. I would love to have that as a poster. There's so many gorgeous magical pages like that, though, too. Like the one where uh, Kalos then throws the uh, claws of Anubis at him, and it's these giant, you know, stripes everywhere with these claw marks on them that, like, you know, red and black pattern claws. And then when Dr. Fate pulls the power out of Boston and just blasts uh, Kalos earlier on with a, a bunch of onk energy. Ah, oh, just stunning stuff. Yeah, and what what I found really interesting is one thing I always like, like looking at is kind of the page layouts or the panel layouts. I went through here a couple times, and there's not a single page that has the same panel layout as another one. Oh, wow. I didn't even notice which that. Would, which would be pretty revolutionary at the time, especially for DC. Um, I mean, mid-'70s, they were starting to get into uh, more dynamic panel layouts and stuff, but this still would have been pretty much unlike anything else you know, on the shelf. There would have at least been some sort of repeat, or you would have had kind of a more traditional all-square panel layouts, and you don't ever have any repeat layout in this story that I could see. Huh. And uh, there's some really neat effects uh, that Simonson uses, kind of some transitions in between panels where he has, like, scrolls laid out, and uh, that scrolls, S-C-R-O-L-L-S, not scrolls, dreams, shape-changing aliens. Yeah. But, uh, with uh, ancient Egypt text and kind of hieroglyphs on it, which is just a really neat effect. I, I really like the uh, 
the panel, I want to say it's on like page two or three, where uh, Dr. Fate comes onto the, uh, where the mummy is, Kalos has just broken out and killed the two people at the museum, and he kind of uses like his evil sense and vision. That's a, that's a really neat panel. It is, yeah. He's got like, it's like a, a wide pink beam coming out of his eyes, and then a narrow sort of red squiggly beam coming out within the pink. It looks great. And then uh, when Dr. Fate comes back after his first battle with Kalos, he comes back to the tower, and he's phasing through the wall there. That yep. phase is awesome. That's one of the best phasing characters, phasing through a solid object panel I've ever seen. And uh, one one other thing that I thought was a really neat effect was kind of the like the word balloons. Whenever Kayla spoke, oh. they were kind of jagged and like pieces were falling off it. It just for me, I'm a I'm a huge Transformers fan. So as soon as I was reading those captions and saw kind of that effect, it made me think of uh, in the Transformers animated movie after Megatron and Optimus Prime had their big battle. Yeah. And Megatron's near death and gets tossed out the ship and goes and talks to Orson Welles in the Tron. Yeah. And his voice is like really beaten down and raspy. It's Frank Welker. Yeah. That's just the, the voice I heard in my head then when I was reading the, the captions. It was yeah. awesome. It's a great effect. Yeah, and just to describe it a little further as I'm looking at it, I mean, literally, it's, it's just like Kyle said. It's, it's a it's a regular word balloon, but the very bottom is actually crumbling off like old masonry. It's a, It looks so cool. It's a, just an amazing effect. Now, here's something that might blow your mind, because I, I, did, I did a little research. I read some interviews with Simonson and, and Pasco about this in preparation for the show. Did you, this is actually, it's either Simonson's very first full-length story he did or one of his first. Either way, I don't remember which off the top of my head, but this is some of Simonson's earliest work as far as doing a full-length comic. And it's this amazing. I mean, wow, for, to be such a new talent in the industry. Now, he'd done a bunch of short stories, but to do a full-length comic, and as you said, the layout's different on every single page, to have all these little neat touches. And in going in, he actually actively trying to figure out a, a magical visual scheme for Dr. Fate. A lot of it's based around the Ankin stuff, but prior to this, uh, Dr. Fate usually just shot blasts and stuff. He did not have all the Egyptian iconography. I mean, that's not to say it was never used, but for the most part, it was very, very rare, uh, if at all. And so Simonson is credited with the iconography of the Ankh for Dr. Fate. And uh, what he did was he looked at um, what Steve Ditko did with Doctor Strange, because apparently Doctor Strange developed, a, uh, when Ditko did that, he developed a very visual style for what magic should look like and what magic did. And whenever you looked at one of Steve Ditko's Doctor Strange stories, even though it was just crazy magic stuff going on, you could still tell what the magic was doing. Whether it was a shield or some sort of attack spell or whatever, the magic still told the story visually of what was happening. You almost didn't need the word balloons to tell you what was happening. And that's what he wanted to do for Doctor Fate. So he tried to create an Egyptian sort of iconography for what Doctor Fate was doing. And you see it in his shields and his attacks and things like that. And man, I mean, just Simonson knocked this out of the park. This is this has got to be one of the most gorgeous Simonson works I've seen. It really is. Oh, I, I definitely agree. The art is absolutely flawless. There is not a single piece of a panel here that isn't perfect. And, and he used um, sound sound effects in a lot of fun ways. Like they'll actually be like in one panel where uh, those guys died, uh, the two guys in the museum. The, the, the bottom panel is just this long, wide thing. It goes all the way across, and it's just the word "arg." It's enormous. You know, and then there's later on, instead of having the sound effect across the panel, it's actually a panel into itself. There's a wham panel like that as well. I love it. Yep. One thing I, I wondered, and I'm going to have to ask Walt on his uh, Facebook page, on his art page, very accurately involved. I feel the questions, but I just didn't think of it until uh, now. But the, the entire time with Kayla, he's always had his mouth open, like he's screaming. Yep. You know? I wonder if that's intentional, because uh, when the Egyptians actually mummified people, they never taped like, their jaws shut. So 
Oh. Time, whenever they find mummies, they're always shrieking because their jaw muscles have deteriorated and their jaw essentially just left open. So they, whenever they unwrap mummies, they find them in a, in a screaming position. I wonder if that was a, a conscious take on that or a happy accident, I guess. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Huh. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Um, <laughs> now, one more thing about the Ankh iconography. I just want to mention, because when I read about that, that Simonson had done that, I did a little research. I went back and actually flipped through some old comics. And sure enough, when I flipped through the Golden Age Dr. Fate archives, I didn't find any Ankh iconography, any of that stuff. I looked through some JLA issues that, uh, that took place before this first issue special. Didn't really see anything along those lines. But then I looked at stuff afterwards, and pretty much the Ankh iconography starts appearing after this. So there was first issue special, and then Dr. Fate appeared three times in All-Star Comics. I don't know if you remember, they did that relaunch in the 70s of All-Star Comics, and uh, Jerry Conway started off that. Anyway, so basically about five months later, after this comic hit the shelves, is when Dr. Fate started using that Ankh iconography, and it just, it's carried through. And that's, as I mentioned at the top of the show, that's what really got me interested when I read that Superpowers comic, was all the uh, Egyptian iconography stuff that they use. So, so cool. Oh, and Inza's car? Inza's car is totally badass. Like, what is that, like a, a 1930s roadster or something like that? Yeah, that's awesome. So, absolutely beautiful. So, I've got some stuff I want to talk about also about the story. So, I, I, I hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm going to jump into some of the story aspects. Some of the stuff that is kind of funny, like, in my mind, we're in this story, but now that I've reread it and really analyzed it, there's stuff that's not in here that I always thought there was. Like, the whole thing about the Lords of Order and the Lords of Chaos... It's not in here at all. None of that's in here. Um, now, they do mention that they, that uh, Dr. Fate would be uh, preserving the natural order. They do talk about the Lords of Life once or twice. They don't talk about that. This just sort of general commentary. It's not about anything connected to Dr. Fate necessarily. So, And I looked into this quite a bit, and... It, uh, there's a great, by the way, there's a great article. Uh, and if you ever read Back Issue magazine, and you can get it digitally nowadays, uh, the older issues, pick up issue 24. It's all about magic, and there's a great article about Dr. Fate and talks specifically about this issue. A lot of quotes from Marty Pascal and Walt Simonson. And Pascal, in that article, credits Walt Simonson with the ideas about the, creating the Lords of Order and Lords of Chaos which apparently, he says, was also borrowed from some ideas from Roger Zelazny, uh, the author. But near as I can tell, it's not actually Simonson that came up with those ideas. Because the first time the Lords of Order and Chaos get mentioned, as is, is near as I can tell, is in DC Special Series number 10, which came out in 1978, which was written by Paul Levitz and drawn by Joe Staten, which is another retelling of Dr. Fate's origin. But in that one, they, they bring out the Lords of Order and Lords of Chaos. Is that just that short, like, two- or three-page story? Uh, yeah, it's it's not... Well, it's a little longer than that. It might be eight pages. It's actually in Immortal Dr. Fate number one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Okay, yeah. Anyway, it's about eight pages, but it's a nice little story. It's, okay. t- it's tight. It's Joe Staten in the 70s when uh, his stuff looked really sharp. It tells you the whole stuff. gives you the Lords and Order and Lords of Chaos, and it also introduces something else. Something else that I didn't pick up on until... Actually, it was probably the second read in this issue. Marty Pascal, he, he decided, just like Simonson introduced the visual look of Dr. Fate, Marty Pascal did introduce two things to the Dr. Fate mythos in this story. One is the, the, the idea that when he puts on the helmet, it's actually a different entity controlling the body. That had never been done before. It always used to just be put on the helmet and he had power. Here, it, he specifically states that when he puts on the helmet, he becomes someone else. In fact, when he talks to Inzi, he always refers to Kent as her husband and stuff like that. The, the idea of the helmet, and also uh, he introduced the idea of the strife between Kent and Inza over this whole issue. Now, again, what I didn't pick up on until the second or third time I read it, they talk about him putting on the helmet as another entity. It's not Naboo that has taken over uh, Kent's body in this. 
It's just an entity. Because, in fact, throughout the story, he refers to himself as a student of Naboo when he's Dr. Fate. He actually talks about, at the end, how Naboo never told him the truth about the amulet. He talks about how Naboo set all this up as a test for him. So, with the way Marty Pasco wrote this story, it's actually some other entity altogether, this Dr. Fate. It wasn't until, again, in that... um for the DC special series by Paul Levitz in 1978, where they did say that the helmet was actually contained the spirit of Naboo. Hmm. So it, maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs here. Maybe it's like, maybe I'm just so deeply steeped in my love for Dr. Fate that I'm really getting into the weeds on this. But I, I just, I'm so used to the helmet being Naboo that it wasn't until I reread it, I realized, wait a minute, he's not Naboo in this story. Yeah, that was something I, I kind of clicked for me momentarily, and then I just kind of skipped over like, eh, whatever, story's too awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a complaint. Not a complaint. Just a total nerdy, you know, I like do, I love doing research on this kind of stuff. So I spent far too much time doing research uh, on this stuff. <laughs> you know, if, folks, if you want to read this story, my recommendation is pick up the, the Immortal Dr. Fate miniseries that Kyle and I have both now referenced. It was printed in the 80s. It's, um, I, don't, I can't remember if it actually had new format slapped on the cover or not, but it was, it was during that new format era where you got nicer paper, the colors really popped. Uh, I don't think there was any ads in it, if I remember correctly. It's a gorgeous collection. It's a three-issue miniseries. It picks up this issue. It picks up uh, that that special series, Secret Origin, I mentioned. It picks up all the the backups that were in the Flash stories. It's great. Now, if you want to wait till December and pick up the trade paperback, you can, but you'd run the risk of forgetting about it between now and then. So I I just I love these comics to death. They're so so very good. Yeah, they're great. Mark Pasdow, he's a he's a writer that sometimes hits miss for me. Uh, sometimes some of his works get a little bogged down, a little bit convoluted. Once they kind of stick out, mind is the uh, first two issues of Comics Presents with the gorgeous Jose Luis Garcia Lopez art. Praise be his name. Yep, that's right. Being <laughs> up with the Flash, and that plot kind of gets bogged down and convoluted a little bit. I still love that comic, but this, this script and writing and pacing is near perfect. I think this is probably the best example of Mark Pascal the best that I've ever read. You know, it's one of the interesting things that happened to them when they were writing this comic. They were literally in the middle of writing and drawing the comic when DC came to them and said, Hey, we're changing the page count of our comics. They're going down from 20 pages to 18 pages. So they had to lose two pages of story halfway through the production of this comic. And uh, I don't remember whether it was Marty or Simonson who said it. Uh, I think it was Simonson who mentioned uh, in the interviews that the re- what they had to do was um, to fix the two-page loss is that's why they had Inza just off-camera go and get the piece from the sarcophagus uh, to try and kind of move the story along faster to get to the resolution. So all that was due to the page count getting cut. Could you imagine being halfway through a story and they tell you you're going to lose two pages? I mean, it's already just 20 pages, so you're losing, what is that, 10% of your book? Jeez. Yeah, wow. They pulled it off, though. They really did. Yep. I was going to talk a little bit about subsequent Dr. Fate. So, now, did you, you mentioned you, the, the Keith Giffen four-issue miniseries, and then that was immediately followed by the uh, J.M.D. Mateus 24, the first 24 issues, and then it was taken over by Bill Messner Loves. Did you read those Dr. Fate issue, stories as well? Uh, not consistently. I have a few of the issues. That's one of on the list of one of the many things that they're hoping to track down and complete my run on. But uh, the few issues I have read, I absolutely love. Okay. I don't, I don't have a split series of it. Well, the first four-issue miniseries by Giffen is pretty trippy. That's where they introduce Eric and Linda Strauss, and they tell us that Dr. Fate was actually always intended to be a man and a woman merged, and that for years, Naboo, uh, by inhabiting the helmet, was actually preventing Kent and Inza merging into being like the ultimate Dr. Fate. So you get Eric and Linda become Dr. Fate for a while. That leads into the um, J.M.D. Matisse 24-issue storybook drawn by Sean McManus. Oh. I love that series. Now, it gets 
I, I'm I'm going to use the word preachy, uh, and I mean that literally because there is a lot of religion in it, and it does sort of kind of talk about it quite a bit. But I don't care. Um, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. There's a lot of stuff about reincarnation in it, and and it leads a certain path, and it's it's a great 24 issues, and it actually has an incredibly satisfying conclusion. And then when he left, Bill Messner Loeb's took over the book, and that was really mainly mainly about Inza as Doctor Fate for quite a while. And uh, I'm sort of proud and embarrassed to say at the same time, I actually have a lot of letters printed in the Bill Messner Lo- uh, Loeb's run of Doctor Fate. I was writing into that book quite fr- quite frequently, and I got printed in a number of issues. So I don't know whether they were just really desperate for letters or uh, mine were any good. I don't know which. <laughs> you can say whichever you want, you want there. I enjoyed it. And it, you know, you mentioned earlier about how magic gets sort of a bad rap and a lot of people get on its case. I'm one of those people, ironically. I love Dr. Fate and the Spectre, and yet I get really mad about comics with magic quite often. The comics that aren't written as well, let's put it that way, when they use magic, it does come down to one character says, I love you, and, the, and that love creates enough power to defeat the bad guy. And it's just like, oh, it's crap. Yep. I can't stand yeah, that. I can't stand that back door. Yeah, I was uh, by the holy host of Hogoth. I've thought of this spell that's going to give you hemorrhoids, and that'll cripple you from defeating me in the fight. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas this, this one, I, I felt like the you know they kind of laid the groundwork for themes of lightness or light versus darkness, and whole set up enough stuff that it was a very natural progression in the story when Inza shows up with the piece of the sarcophagus, and that's you know the the piece of the puzzle to garner enough power of light to overcome. Anubis and Kalos, you know, and then on top of that, you know, Anubis kind of screwing Kalos over. I mean, he is, like I said, kind of been aligned with like the, the Christian devil. And so, uh, you know, that deceit is very in character for him there. Both of those kind of twists seem very natural in the story. Yep. Now we just need a, uh, a Dr. Fate Stargate crossover because, you know, with all the Egyptian mythology, that'd be perfect. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. Pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I'm not really serious, I promise you. <laughs> I don't know if you're reading uh, any DC stuff currently, but you know, we just got to see uh, the recently we got to see the classic Kent Nelson Doctor Fate in Convergence, in, uh, Convergence Justice Society America. I've only read the first issue; I haven't read the second. And it's sitting in a stack by the bed, but it was great seeing Doctor Fate, you know, classic original Doctor Fate in action. That was really exciting for me. I, did you pick that up? I picked both issues up. I have not read them yet. I'm really far behind. I've pretty much picked up all the week four, all the kind of multiple Earth titles, except for the Charlton one, just because it's written by Scott Lobdell. I think I'd probably rather read a Charlton World comic written by Rob Liefeld than I would Scott Lobdell right now. But wait, which one? Which one was that? The Blue Devil or the Blue Beetle one? Yeah. Really? Because I read the Blue Beetle one and thought it was really, at least the first issue was really good. I didn't know that was That's a Scott Lobdell book. Huh. Maybe, well, you know, it's DC and they like to change things at the last minute, but when it was solicited, it was, uh, Scott Lobdell was, well, uh, the writer on the, on the Charlton book and every new 52 book I've read by him, which ended up being quite a few, has just been complete poison. So I've said, eh, not worth my eight dollars. <laughs> well, you know, Scott Lobdell and I have a long history where, like, I, uh, I actually enjoyed some of his Marvel stuff. Like, I, I really dug his Alpha Flight work. Uh, I enjoyed some of his X-Men stuff. So now I haven't read any of his new 52 stuff. I've heard, you know, well, that's not true. I did read his Teen Titans and it was terrible. But, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe going back to revisiting this Charlton stuff was better his, you know, better his work. I don't know. Either way, I enjoyed it. But, um, but definitely read those JSA, uh, convergent ones. At least number one was really good. I'm assuming number two is going to be just as good. I'm really looking forward to those. I just need to dedicate some time to sit down and, uh, taking the time to read them. I'll probably do a, 
episode then recap uh, when I do get around to covering them. Cool. That'd be great. And uh, also, at the time of this recording, at least, um, by the time it airs, it might already be out, though, but DC is actually publishing a brand new ongoing Dr. Fate series as part of, uh, I guess it's not the new 52 anymore, now it's called DCU. So yeah, there's a brand new Dr. Fate series. It's a new guy wearing the helmet. He's a med student, young guy. So, and the art looks really fun and really quirky. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not getting a lot of comics nowadays, but I may have to pick this one up. I don't know. I'm tempted. Sorely tempted. Yeah, that's, uh, that one along with, uh, the Black, Black Canary one. Something I'm kind of interested in trying out and at least giving the, the first story arc. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A chance to see where it goes. It does look good, doesn't it? Yeah. There's actually a few, there's a few books that look pretty decent. Like, Batmite number one just came out this week and it's got Firestorm on the cover. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> I don't know if he's ever going to make an appearance in the Batmite book. Being written by Dan Jurgens, he might. But, uh, so I may have to check out some of that for fun. Now, if you need more Dr. Fate in your life, and let's face it, who doesn't, uh, you can check out the Tower of Fate blog. That is a blog dedicated to following, obviously, the adventures of fate. And you can just Google Tower of Fate. He's also very active on Twitter under Tower of Fate. Good stuff. You can also check out, and I only found out about this recently because apparently I had my head in the sand, there's actually a Dr. Fate podcast. It's called Lords of Order. So it's a Lords of Order podcast. Uh, Ed Moore does it, who actually um, is, is connected through the interwebs through Professor Alan Quarterbin. So uh, check that out. I've listened to a couple episodes myself today, really enjoying Lords of Order podcast. And also, if you need to, um, there are lots of Dr. Fate action figures out there. Like, I, I actually have probably a few too many. I've got the Superpowers one that I bought years later. I've got the the DC one where he's got the really shiny gold helmet. I've got the New Frontier one. I've got the little Infinite Heroes one that was actually Hector. Uh, and then I've got a Justice Justice League Unlimited one and some Hero Clicks. And you can get some Dr. Fate and dress up your office and play with them and make them fight each other. You know, whatever. Get a mummy. Have a battle. Now, um, Kyle, what? Any any last thoughts before we go? Don't you have a uh, like sweet cut from Miko, Doctor Fate? Holy, holy crap! I didn't mention these. You know what? It's up on a shelf. It's actually up on a shelf, like in a display, and not with the other figures because it's actually on display. And so I didn't even think to mention that. Yes, I've got a gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous custom Doctor Fate Mego, which was made by uh, Mark Souter, who uh, has a, a great. Great site. Um, go out to firestormfan.com or Once Upon a Geek and Google Dr. Fate Mago and you'll find it. There's a picture of it. It's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, my good friend, well, I use the term loosely, but I guess I should mean it this time. He, uh, Rob Kelly actually bought that for me as a, I believe, as a birthday gift. And it's just stunning. Absolutely love it. So, And the rest of you should be sufficiently jealous because it is a beautiful piece. I am. It's awesome. Are you going to pick up the new Dr. Fate series? Yeah, I think I'm going to definitely give it a shot. You know, I, I really hope it embraces kind of, you know, ancient Egypt or, you know, ancient archaeology or mystical artifacts aspect of it. You know, it kind of seems to be like a, a plot device that isn't really used that much in any sort of media, especially comics I mean, nowadays. Like, you know, almost everything is futuristic technology or alien technology. And so it's kind of be nice to get back to that kind of archaeology ancient Egypt through. That's something I have a real interest in. And just including that a lot in the story would definitely make me uh, give it a pass Well, I know the, the the main character. Uh, I mentioned he's a he's a young med student, but I do know he's Egyptian as well. So hopefully, you will see some of that influence in the book. So, well, uh, I know we talked about it earlier in the show, but why don't you tell the kids at home where they can find you on a regular basis, Kyle? Okay, well, on my blog, I have uh, my blog is King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Fallen Word dot blogspot dot com, and I don't have a whole lot of posts other than episodes. I'm going to start putting up some more. Uh, I actually used to write some articles and. Uh, 
kind of like DC and Marvel uh, history type stuff for the Outhouser site. Uh, I can't talk Outhouser site. Wow. That's <laughs> Um, which is, of course, infamous on the uh, internet for having the head done something stupid lately, Fox. Uh, right. <laughs> and so, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote some articles for them. Uh, I started trying to repost the those, and how I first started started to get that gig is uh, when I was I was living in Des Moines area at that time at the little shop I went to there. Uh, I they put out a weekly newsletter, and so I'd write a piece for them. And well, the guy that owned the shop actually started writing for the Outhousers. Uh, he'd write kind of some problems that as a shop owner that he has. And so uh, I already told it and then kind of asked me to start writing some for them. So that's kind of how I got tapped doing that. But uh, that guy no longer works at the Outhousers, so I only put up a few stuff. But I kept writing for the comic weekly newsletter. And so I started, I'm going to start putting some of those articles up that I've written two or three years ago. And so some of those will be on there. Uh, a lot of those kind of dive into the history of some of the DC and Marvel giants and the reprint series they had in the 70s and 80s. But anyway, that's uh, Kingside Comics, GiantSizeFun.blogspot.com, and that's where I post uh, my four podcasts that are all in the same feed. So on iTunes, all you have to search for is Kingside Comics, Giant Size Fun. Uh, the, the main show, I talk about Giant Size Comics. Right now, I'm just kind of wrapping up some coverage on the uh, first two uh, issues of All-Star Comics from the 1940s. And then after that, uh, the rest of June, I'm going to dive into John Byrne's Generations uh, miniseries, the first Ooh. four issues of that. Nice. And so uh, I also have a random comic showcase where I just kind of cover whatever. I double dip on that a little bit whenever I write stuff for the Legion of Super Bloggers. I usually then use my notes to knock out an episode because I'm lazy like that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> also I have uh, a free comic book spotlight podcast on that feed where I talk about free comics. And then my most recent endeavor is the Crisis on Multiple Earths podcast where I'm just working through the eight DC trade paperbacks. There's six volumes of the Crisis on Multiple Earths and then there's two volumes of the Crisis on Multiple Earths uh, team-ups. And so I'm just covering those stories chronologically. By the time this episode probably goes up, I'll either have three or four episodes of that out. So, And you're definitely going to have to join me on the uh, two-parter in uh, showcase number 55 and 56 there, where it's Dr. Fate Power Man, I believe, is the second character in that. Oh, I would love that. That would be fantastic. Be happy to. Well, folks, uh, if you want to see some pages from this, uh, we're going to go ahead and publish some on our Tumblr. Normally, Rob's here to do this heavy lifting. I don't like doing this part. Anyway, you can find that at fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. You can also send us an email at firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. You can find me at firestormfan.com. You can also find me on the social medias under the same handle on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can find my good friend Rob uh, over at aquamanshrine.net. He's also on Facebook and Twitter as Aquaman Shrine. And Kyle, you're up on the social medias also, right? Yeah, I have a uh, Twitter page. It's just at kylebenning41, I think. Uh, you can find me pretty easily on there. I think my current image on there is uh, Cubs. Go Cubs, go. And uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'm on Facebook. You can friend me on Facebook. Uh, my personal page is just Kyle Benning. And then uh, the blog and podcast also have a Facebook page. So that's just search for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. The direct URL for that is facebook.com slash comics retro review. Oh, nice. Okay. Nice, uh, nice vanity link. Very cool. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for being on the show. Kyle did this on very short notice. And uh, I can't tell him how much I appreciate it. And I appreciate even more him not getting in a car accident while we're recording. Yeah, thanks for having me aboard. Sorry, uh, the reception was so bad there a few times. <laughs> well, no worries. It's all going to work out in the edits, hopefully. All right, folks. Uh, until next time, fan the flame, ride the wave, and blast the onk. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime to 
more truth than justice in sea on land and air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! This is Kent Nelson, a friend. He is 106 years old. Guy doesn't look a day over 90. And he has been missing for 23 days. Kent was a charter member of the Justice Society, the precursor to your mentor's Justice League. Of course. Nelson was Earth's Sorcerer Supreme. He was Dr. Fate. <laughs> More like Dr. Fake. Guy knows a little advanced science. Dumbledore is it up to scare the bad guys and impress the babes. Kent may simply be on one of his walkabouts. But he is caretaker to the Helmet of Fate, the source of the Doctor's mystic might, and it is unwise to leave such power unguarded.